You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Give me just one generation of youth, and I'll transform the world. That's a quote from Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin. He alone who owns the youth gains the future. Adolf Hitler. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. Ronald Reagan. And if we look in the book of Judges, chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, we read, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being an hundred and ten years old. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. We're continuing our sermon series, What the Bible Says About. Today our topic is What the Bible Says About Family. And if you'd like, there's some green sheets that are laying on that white table back in the middle and also on the stand outside that have the references uh, for today that we'll be looking up. And also on the back, a brief summary. These topics that we're addressing are controversial topics for the most part, and you can't deal with them in one uh, sermon. So we, we've been doing Q&A in the evenings uh, on Sunday night. We're going to move it up an hour tonight. We're going to meet at 5.30 here at the church tonight due to the holiday and some people wanting to participate in the fireworks and so forth. So we'll meet at 5.30. If you have a question uh, that comes up or something is not addressed, uh, there should be some 3 by 5 cards in the seat backs. You can pull out one of those, write your question, stick it in the box back by the coffee pot, and then we'll address those questions tonight when we meet. So we'll do that at 5.30 rather than 6.30. What the Bible says about family. Our focus will be on God's purpose for the family and our role in accomplishing that purpose. So pray with me that the Holy Spirit will reveal his word to us this morning. Father, we do thank you that we can come together and look into your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you've revealed yourself to us in this book. Uh, Your character, your program for this world, and especially the gospel that you have sacrificed so that we can have a relationship with you. We pray today that as we look into your word and talk about the family, that we will see Uh, your purposes and our role in your purpose. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As Jason mentioned last week when he was preaching on marriage, one of God's purposes for marriage is family. God had families in mind when he established marriage. Today we're going to look at why. Because we know, and certainly God knows, that neither family or marriage are necessary for human reproduction, yet God established the family. Why did he do that? Turn with me to Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, just before you come to Matthew. In this passage in chapter 2, God is rebuking Israel because they're divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying wives of the followers of other gods that are around them in the land. So in chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, And did not he make one? And wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. When it refers to making one, it's referring back to Genesis, where it says that God made the two people, husband and wife, one. In other words, didn't God establish marriage? And why did he establish marriage? He is looking for godly future generations, a godly posterity. There are many benefits from family. Emotional benefits, social benefits, economic benefits. But God's stated purpose here in Malachi is that he established marriage and family to provide godly future generations, a godly posterity. God wants to use the family to pass faith in him on into future generations. The human race is similar to our human bodies in one respect, and that is our bodies are comprised of around 30 trillion cells, most of which reproduce, die, and are replaced many times over the course of our lifetime. Our cells are able to do this based on the genetic information contained in our DNA. The human race is comprised of billions of individuals who live and reproduce and die and are replaced by the next generation so that the human race may continue. Families provide the information the DNA, if you will, for the next generation. God's plan is for godly parents to pass godliness on to their children and their children's children. God's primary purpose for family is to produce godly future generations. So as followers of Jesus, what is our role in this process? Do we have a role? Has God established a role for us in this process? I think he has. I think we'll see from scripture today that he has. And it, you may not be called to be married. You may not be called to have children if you are married. So no matter who you are, God has a role for you in his plan. And we'll look at that today. 
So if God has called us to be married and have children, we are responsible to train our children to have a God-centered worldview. We are responsible to train our children. And we see this in Ephesians chapter four, 6 and verse 4 where it says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And also in Proverbs chapter 22 verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. And in Moses' charge to Israel as they prepared to enter the promised land, he says, Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from all thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons, especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth and that they may teach their children. So we need to teach our children. Why is it that we need to teach or train our children? Well, one reason is that we're all naturally born sinners. We're natural born sinners, all of us. You don't need to teach children to be selfish, but you do need to teach them to share. And it's, that's, that's the way it is in every aspect of our lives. David said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And in Proverbs 13, 24, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes or early. So we have to train our children because we're all born sinners. And God as the perfect father and knowing that is committed to training us. Like we sang in the song earlier, God is the perfect father. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. So in order to fulfill God's purpose in providing a godly posterity, we should have the same goals for our family that God has for us. God wants us to be constantly talking about him and his word. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 7, it says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So we're to be talking about God and about his word all the time. We can't effectively teach our children about God if we only do it in Sunday school or if we only do it in church or even if we only do it in a family devotional time at home. God wants us to teach our children about him all the time. 
in everyday situations. God wants us to internalize godly principles and grow to be more like Jesus. Our children's faith in God must be their own faith and not ours if they are to be the next godly generation that God is seeking. God wants us to walk in heartfelt relationship with him. God in Isaiah and Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew both condemn those who say the right things with their mouth, but their hearts are far from God. We've talked about God's goal of raising up godly future generations. In fact, God says this is why he established marriage. Let's think for a moment of the how-to. How do we follow the instruction of Ephesians 6.4, provoke not your children to wrath, but raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? What does that look like? Well, we can look at the example of how God trains us so as to nurture and admonish us, but not to exasperate us. In our men's breakfast Bible study, we thought of a few examples of how God trains us and teaches us. God gives us discipline because we can't raise ourselves, and that discipline is for our good. It says in Hebrews 12:11, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So God gives us discipline for our good. And we should discipline our children for their good. God does not give us arbitrary rules and is never hypocritical. Jesus talked about the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one of them with their fingers. The Pharisees were hypocritical. This is very important. We read in Deuteronomy about teaching our children God's truth in every situation. When we sit in our house, when we travel down the road, when we lie down, when we rise up. But preceding this command in Deuteronomy, we have another command, very important. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. For better or for worse, how we live teaches our children more than we will ever be able to say. Modeling what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and asking our children's forgiveness when we fail to do that is essential to God's plan to provide a godly next generation. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> God does not give arbitrary rules and is never hypocritical. And we should not give our children arbitrary rules or be hypocritical. God gives us clear boundaries in every situation through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. God gives us commands to obey. There are many commands in the New Testament and instructions on how we should live. But God doesn't limit himself just to those commands. God also applies those commands to our everyday lives through the Holy Spirit that lives in us. The Holy Spirit constantly tells us what to do and what not to do. If we're listening to hear his voice, we will know if we are obeying God or if we are disobeying and stepping over his boundaries. God gives us clear boundaries. We should give our children clear boundaries. God confronts us when we sin and forgives us when we repent. He does not keep reminding us of our failures. In 1 John 1, beginning in verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. God confronts us when we sin, he forgives us when we repent, and he does not keep reminding us of our failures. We should confront our children when they sin, and forgive them when they repent, and not hold past sins against them. God calls us to perfection, but he realizes that maturity is a process. He does not expect a level of perfection that we haven't yet achieved. God has compassion on us. Psalm 103, beginning in verse 13, says, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. So God calls us to perfection but realizes that maturity is a process. And he doesn't expect a level of perfection that we have not achieved. He has compassion on us. And we should realize in dealing with our children that maturity is a process. We should not expect them to be perfect but have compassion on them, knowing that we were also once children and we are also sinners. God gives us warnings before executing punishment. You can see this throughout the scripture. He told Cain when he brought the wrong offering, if you do well, won't your offering be accepted? He gave him a chance to bring the right offering. He told Lot in Genesis 19 before he destroyed the city of Sodom, get out of here, I'm going to destroy this city. He told Noah, about the coming judgment. And Noah, in turn, warned the people around him. It says he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years while he was building the ark. 
God sent Moses, Jeremiah, Micah, Habakkuk, Isaiah, and other prophets to the nation of Israel to warn them about the consequences of worshiping false gods and disregarding God's law. The New Testament warns us, all the way from the Gospels, where Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to the end, to the book of the Revelation, where Jesus, writing to his churches, says, repent, or else I will come to you suddenly, unexpectedly, and remove your lampstand. God gives us warnings before executing punishment. We should give our children warnings before executing punishment. However, God lovingly follows through with discipline and punishment. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. Hebrews 12 talks about God's relationship with us as a father. And in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5, the writer says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. God lovingly follows through with discipline and punishment for us, and we should lovingly follow through with discipline for our children. So if we follow God's model of discipline, are we guaranteed to have godly children? No, we are not. Every person bears the responsibility for his or her own choices, and that includes our children, and that includes their choices when it comes to the gospel. But our choices as the heads of our families do have consequences for our posterity far into the future for good and for evil. So I want to remind you of the story of Abraham. If you recall in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 11 through chapter 25 tells this story. God chose Abraham. He called him out of the land where he was living and sent him to a land that he promised to give him, the promised land. And Abraham went there. He went there with his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot, and they were there for a while and a famine came. And Abraham decided, okay, uh, we need to go down to Egypt where we'll have a better chance of having food. So they went to Egypt. There's no indication really that God had 
advised Abraham to leave the land that he promised to give him and go to Egypt. But he went. As soon as he got down there, he had an issue, and that was he was afraid that the Egyptians were going to kill him because his wife Sarah was beautiful and they would want to marry his wife Sarah. So Abraham was afraid of this. So he told Sarah, okay, when we get down there, you tell them that you're my sister, which was half true. Don't tell them you're my wife. And sure enough, when they got down there, Pharaoh, the princes of Pharaoh saw Sarah and said, hey, have you seen this lady, this girl? And so Pharaoh took her into his harem. He didn't actually uh, marry her as a wife, but that was in the cards for her in the future. Unless, but God stepped in and he prevented that from happening. And Pharaoh told Abraham, you shouldn't have done that. That wasn't good. You got us in trouble. And Abraham and Sarah and Lot then went back to the promised land. But while they were in Egypt, and this is an assumption on my part, Sarah uh, came to have an Egyptian handmaid called Hagar. I assume probably in Egypt was where she joined their party, but I'm not sure. Anyway, so Sarah has this Egyptian handmaid named Hagar. And I'm sure you know the story, but when Abraham was about 85 and Sarah was about 75, um, God had promised Abraham years before that he would make his uh, posterity, his future generations, his people, as many as the sand of the seashore and as many as the stars in heaven. But up until now, Sarah is barren and Abraham has not had any kids. No kids, 85 years old. So they decide, Sarah and Abraham, Sarah's idea it says, Okay, the custom of our land is that if I don't have any children, in order for us to continue to have children and, and continue the generations to follow, you should, I should give you my Egyptian handmaid, Hagar, and you should have children by her, and then our family will continue. And that was the tradition in that day, kind of their way of surrogate motherhood, I guess. Anyway, so they did that, and Hagar did have a child, a son named Ishmael, and if you're familiar with history, you know that the Arabs traced their descendants back to Ishmael and Abraham. So Ishmael is now the Arab people, and when God did eventually fulfill his promise to Abraham, when Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 90, they had Isaac. And Isaac is now the people of Israel. So we have the people of Israel and we have the Arabs. And what is happening between those two groups and has been for as far as back as we can see? It's war. War between these two peoples. And the reason that that happened, at least from a human perspective, is that Abraham made a choice to follow the traditions of his country and provide an heir for himself, not the one that God promised, but the one that he had worked out. That choice that he made has cost millions of lives and is still costing millions of lives and will into the future. 
So our choices have consequences into the future. And as parents, we all blow it. We know that. The only thing that we can do when we blow it is go to the Lord, like we read in 1 John 1, 9, to confess our sin, that we confess our sin, Lord, I did this wrong, this was a sin, and then we try and move on from there and do it right. Because God will forgive us for those mistakes that we made, but that doesn't mean the consequences won't go on into the future. Well, God doesn't call everyone to be married, and he doesn't call every married couple to have children. And even if you are called to be married and have children, that period of active child rearing is a very small window of time in your life. It may seem like that you will never get done changing diapers, but when you blink, they're in school. And when you turn around, they're out on their own raising their own families. So that window of time when we're actually raising up our children is a very short season of our life. It's temporary. However, every believer is born into God's larger family, whether you're called to be married or not. Every believer is called to reproduce ourselves spiritually by spreading the good news of what God has done in reconciling us to himself through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. We are all called to be discipled and to disciple others. We are all called to be members of a local church where we can grow one another using the spiritual gifts that God has given us. This family, the church, is also an essential part of God's plan to provide a godly posterity. And it is for all of us for our whole lives. The NLT says it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then will we no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. What does the Bible say about family? To summarize, we've seen that while the family provides many benefits, God's primary purpose for the family is to produce godly future generations. 
We saw that in Malachi chapter 2. We have a responsibility before God to train our children to become that next godly generation who are in turn able to do the same. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 6. Since God is the perfect father, we can follow his example of how he deals with us. We can't be successful in training our children unless we model with our life what we say with our mouth. We saw that in Matthew 23. While not all are called to be parents, all believers are born into God's larger family and called to spiritually disciple others and reproduce their lives in others. That's our commission. We are all called to be members of a local church where we can grow one another using the spiritual gifts that God has given us. And this family, the church, is also an essential part of God's plan to provide a godly posterity. And it is for all of us for our whole lives. In order for any of this to happen, we have to be a part of God's family. We have to be born again. We have to have committed our lives to Jesus Christ, to the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is something different from any other religion that you will find. In every religion, men sacrifice and men do things in order to appease or please their God. It's up to us to have a relationship with him by the things that we do. The gospel is the opposite. The gospel is what God did for us. We were sinners deserving God's judgment and wrath, his righteous wrath. And in order to enable us to have a relationship with him throughout eternity, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God himself paid the penalty for our sins. He paid the penalty so that we can have a relationship with him. There's nothing that we can do in order to enhance that. Jesus did it all. He paid the penalty for us. And we must, knowing that, repent of our sins, trust in that salvation that he's provided, and give our lives to him. And if we do that, then we can be in God's family. And we can be part of his plan to provide godly future generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word, that you revealed the gospel to us in your word, that you sent Jesus to pay for our sins so that if we would trust in you we could be born again into your family we ask that you would guide us today if there are areas where we are failing we pray that we would confess those to you and trust in you to cleanse us from all unrighteousness we thank you father for the chance to know you and to get together in fellowship today in jesus name